Our reading today is Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as sure and as steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Sorry as I get situated. We are uh, still in our sermon series, going through the book of Hebrews. And focusing mainly on the supremacy of Christ. And last week, Todd uh, reminded us that Jesus is our high priest. And also reminded us of our high calling to be a royal priesthood as well. This week, we're going to see another aspect of God through Jesus Christ. And it's this idea that we have a God whose promises are eternally trustworthy and for our good. Um, Some of you all know this. And those that don't, this will explain a lot for you. I'm the youngest of four. And my siblings were my heroes growing up because of this. So my sister's two years older than me, and my brothers are five and seven years older than me. And so a lot of my childhood was spent antagonizing them, trying to get their attention, and and trying to impress them, and just be around them. Anytime I was with them, and even better, their friends, I was happy. So one of the ways that I would impress them growing up was um, by the amount that I could eat. As a kid, I could like really put away food. I don't know why that was a thing that I thought was impressive, but they would definitely use it against me and try to make me eat a lot. So one day when I was like eight or nine years old, my mom uh, made silver dollar pancakes, which is just like pancakes that are just like a third of the size of like normal size pancakes. And... uh, One Saturday morning, she made them, and I slept in later than everyone else. And when I came down, everyone else had already eaten. But there were still like 15 or 20 of these bad boys left. And so my brother Jimmy, who was like around 13 at the time, said, I bet you can't eat all of those. And even at eight, I was highly competitive, and and I wanted to impress him. Uh, And everything in me wanted to be like, I can definitely eat all these easy. But... Trying to be smart, I said, I, no, I don't want to be sick on this Saturday. And it was a lot. So he said, but if you eat all of these pancakes, every single one of them, you can come hang out with me and my friends today for 30 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this changes things. So you promise? And he said, I promise. And so I sat down and I crushed every single one of those silver dollar pancakes. This like intersection of like impressing my brother, but then also getting to hang with his friends was like the pinnacle of what I wanted. 
And so he laughed and, you know, mission accomplished. And later that day, he went over to his friend's Jamie's house. And true to his word, I was like, can I come? He said, sure. Clock starts. And I think, man, I swear it was like five minutes in. I could tell he regretted this, this bet that he made with me. And they were probably playing like a video game, like Super Nintendo or something. And I kept asking for a turn. I got obnoxious quick. And no joke, within five minutes, he was like, get out. And I was like, no, I've got 25 minutes left. I mean, I was on my watch. Like, I had it. And he was like, I don't care. Leave. And I said, you promise. And he was like, I let you come for a bit. The game is over. Leave or I'm going to hurt you. And he would have. So I left, you know, heartbroken on some level, maybe a little betrayed. But it was also instructive a little bit. I knew that from there on out, I needed to think about uh, the promises from Jimmy. Because I knew that they might be a little suspect uh, from here on out. This week I was thinking about the promises of God and how often we look at them in the same way. In one sense, we, we don't doubt his promises. We, we, we believe that God is who he says he is, or, or at least in part, and we know that he should be trustworthy. But man, when life happens, when, when the chaos of life comes down on us or when things go south or we're struggling, it's easy for us to forget the promises of God. When things don't go the way we want them or, or the way we planned or hoped or when, when tough times come, when the first things we do is forget about his promises, doubt his trustworthiness, and we forget and ignore all the things that he's promised us through scripture. And, and as I was thinking this week, like the promises of God, this can be very abstract in some way. Like what does that even mean? Well, if you look throughout the Bible, God promises us a lot of things. And in our passage, we see the promise he gave to Abraham, that he would bless and multiply him, even when they struggled to conceive for, for decades. But this is only one of the many promises of God, and I thought it would be helpful for us to be reminded of them as we talk about God's promises, to get a little more concrete evidence of what these promises are. Psalm 100 reminds us that God is good. It says, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all the generations. God promises us often in the Bible that he will always be with us. Deuteronomy 31 says, The Lord himself goes before you, will always be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. God promises us salvation through Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, it says, uh, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God promises to provide for us. Romans 8 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? God promises to forgive us our sins and have grace for us. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us. And also in First John, we're reminded that God is love and loves us. And the only way we know love is through God. So these promises of God that they're throughout the Bible, these are just like a few of them. And I, as I was thinking about the way we interact with these promises, I think we fall in a few categories. There's some of us here when things go south, when the hard times come, the first place you go is to doubt, is God good? How could he have let this happen to me? In crisis, it is hard to believe that he's good sometimes or that he, all these things we just read are true. Some of you, when you're in spiritually dry seasons, 
It's hard to believe that the presence of God is with you, that he will never leave nor forsake you. There are some of you here that struggle or are struggling with sin and going through a tough time in how you are acting. And you doubt whether the promise that God will forgive you no matter what is true of you or not. There's some of you that are struggling with self-hatred and insecurity. And it's hard for you to believe that God loves you. When life comes crashing down around us, it's easy to forget all of these promises of God. To believe them. To not be apathetic towards them. To not forget them. And when we do this, what happens is we begin to feel unstable and anxious. And it leads us away from Christ and His kingdom. And so that's the posture that I want us to come to this passage with. We're going to spend our time today being reminded that these promises of God are eternally trustworthy for our good, no matter what is happening in our lives and in the world around us, that we truly can stake our lives on them, that they're worth living for. And we're going to see this in three ways. Because we can trust the promises of God, we must first grow in godly patience. Grow in godly patience. Second, we must cling to godly hope. And third, we must embrace godly assurance and security. So patience, hope, and assurance and security. So first, patience. We're going to look at uh, verses 13 through 15, and they say this. I'm going to read them back for you. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained this promise. So the author of Hebrews introduces the idea that we serve a God who makes promises to his people that they can trust in and that they will come to fruition. And he uses Abraham as his example. And Abraham's a prototype for Israel, but also for us as we consider what it means to believe and follow these promises of God. But there's something very interesting about the author of Hebrews using Abraham in this context. Because we know that God used that terminology with Abraham often, that he would bless him and multiply him and, and, and make him fruitful. But the actual quotation from this passage is from Genesis 22. This is interesting because this is God uh, making this final oath and promise to Abraham is after God told him to take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. So it's after this trial that God reiterates this promise to Abraham. But more than just reiterate it, he swears a deeper oath to Abraham that it will happen, swearing on himself, which we'll get into in a little bit. Critical situations call for bold statements and strong language. And so this, this promise and following up with an oath is using that extreme language. And of course we know that the word of God doesn't necessitate an oath, but he did it to show how seriously he took this promise. And Abraham had just gone through one of the most difficult trials of his life. And it was after that that God promised to bless and multiply him. But Abraham had been waiting for a long time already. There had been decades where he and Sarah had gone without conceiving. And then right when they were able to, and as they had their son, God asked him to sacrifice him. And of course, we know God provided an actual sacrifice for him. He didn't make him sacrifice Isaac. But it was only after that deep suffering and trial, after all those decades culminating in this, this, this act with Isaac on the mountain, that God kind of 
fulfilled his promise. The, the author of Hebrews says he obtained this promise from God. So Abraham is this paragon of faith that is mentioned here in countless times in other places in the New Testament because he trusted God no matter how long it took. He was unwavering that God would be true to what he promised despite all this hardship through pain and brokenness. He was patient. And God blessed him for it. Here's what I think these promises of God did for Abraham. They were what allowed him to be patient. They they were like the fuel for his tank. God promised Abraham a lot. He he said he would make his name great. He would give him a people. He would bless him. He would make a a blessing to others. and, and, And he would bring him and his people to a land that they would settle at one day. And he so believed God that he was able to patiently wait for God to fulfill that stuff for decades. Think how much more God has promised us than Abraham. Think of all the full counsel of Scripture and all of redemptive history that we have seen, the ways in which God has blessed, multiplied, provided for, and brought His people through hard times throughout all of redemptive history. Think of how much more gas for our tank that we have to trust and be patient for God than Abraham did thousands of years ago. One thing we forget, I, I forgot about it this week, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I, I, I think patience might be the fruit of the Spirit that we talk about the least. Part of it's cultural. We live in an impatient society. We can watch whatever show we want, whenever we want. We can talk to anyone whenever we want instantly. And we can, pre-pandemic, essentially go wherever we want. We live in a society that allows us to never have to be patient for anything. Even if I want to order something or buy something, I can look up thousands of people that have bought it before me. I don't even have to test it out. I can know everything about it before it gets to me. We live in a society that allows us to never have to be patient for anything. And it's made us impatient. So when we do have to wait for something, we don't know what to do. Having to be patient for things stirs up this deep anxiety inside of us because we're never conditioned to have to wait. But when we get sick and are forced to wait on test results, the virtue of patience is crucial. When we're waiting on job applications to get a response, our patience is tested. When we're waiting for our spouse to change, to finally hear us, to meet us, where we want them or need them to be, godly patience is incredibly important. When we're hoping for friends and community and into isolation, learning to wait on God and His timing is incredibly important. I think we need to change the way that we view godly patience because it has to be rooted in His promises. We are so conditioned to be impatient Growth for us will be actively working on and growing in patience. We have to be intentional about this. And if we are, we will grow in it. But it has to be rooted in who God has revealed himself to be and who he's promised himself to be for us. Because in our waiting, he is still trustworthy. In our impatience, he's patient with us. 
in our frustration, He is with us. Those things that we talked about earlier, the goodness of God, the salvation of God, the grace of God, the love of God is still ours, even if we are in a period of waiting, no matter what it is. And in a lot of ways, all of us are in a period of waiting right now as we wait for things to get back to normal, for the pandemic to finally end, for for us to be able to engage in community, maybe back in the sanctuary like we're used to. We're all there in some way. And the wrong application from this passage would be this. You ready? This is the wrong application. If Abraham can trust God and be patient for decades, culminating in asking him to sacrifice his own son, then you can be patient in whatever you're going through. It's no biggie. But that's not true. The better application is whatever you're waiting on, the promises of God are still true over you and me and all of us. No matter how big, how small, whatever it is that you are feeling like you have to wait on, it matters to God and He's faithful to you in it. So those of you that need that extra measure of patience this morning, be reminded of His promises. He is faithful to who He, he says He is and who He has revealed Himself to be. And if you're going through it in crisis or hurting or feel chaotic and anxious, God's promises are true of you this morning. He has promised to bless you and love you and provide for you and forgive you even in your brokenness. Let us patiently wait on the Lord who patiently waits on us. And that brings us to the next point. Because the promises of God are trustworthy, we can grow in godly patience. And now we're going to see that we must cling to godly hope. So in the ancient uh, Mediterranean world, oaths were given in human courts in two ways. And they're actually very similar to the ways that uh, we give oaths today. And there's all this legal terminology in verses 16 through 18. So this is just a little uh, context for that. So the first way is if you come to court, you swear an oath, just like we do when you put your hand on the Bible and you go to court and you swear an oath. And what you're saying is my testimony is 100% trustworthy. And then the second thing that happens in these courts is you bring a witness in to corroborate your testimony. But the only slight difference is, typically in the Mediterranean world, you bring in someone that's of higher status than you or is uh, more trustworthy than you. Someone that's higher than you that can vouch for your testimony or your character and say what they're saying is true. And this is the the basis of verses 16 and 17. It says this, people swear by something greater than themselves. This is the idea that someone greater than you corroborates your testimony. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. That is their oath that their testimony is true. That's final. But then it says this, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So he's using this legal terminology. He's saying God uh, gave us an oath to say that his promises are true no matter what. The strongest thing he could do was to say, my testimony about you, my promises, are 100% true. But, as we saw earlier in chapter 13, it says there's no one greater or higher than God. So who could God bring in to corroborate that his testimony is true? No one. So what does God do? He swears on his own name and his own character. He's promising us through an oath that he is through... Uh, who he says he is, and the defense of that oath is his own character, his own integrity, because there's no one higher than him. 
So this is why in verse 18 it says that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, listen to this, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God is fully perfect, good, loving, full of justice, mercy, and truth. That's never changing, ever. And it's impossible for Him to lie. So because that's true, we can trust His oath. We can trust in Him. This is where the author of Hebrews roots our hope in life. In the perfect nature of God who swears that He will never change. Who is unable to change. Who goes the extra mile to promise us that He will be who He says He is. And this is so cool. When you look at hope this way, you look at it in a different way. We need to look at hope, a longing for something more, a taste that there is more out there than just what we experience. We need to begin to look at that as an objective reality. Godly hope is actually synonymous with promise in this context. Because we know what God promises will 100% come to fruition. So hope here is a fact. It's an objective reality. We always view hope as subjective. Something that we feel rooted uh, in what we need or we want. That we cling to. And there is space for subjective hope. And we'll talk about that. But in this context, we see that godly hope is rooted in the character and nature of God. And thus is objective. It's a fact. So we have to recalibrate how we engage with hope. It's not just subjective, depending on how we feel. And the way that we feel does matter. And we should be cognizant of it. And coming out of this pandemic life, a lot of us feel lonely and depressed and isolated and hopeless. The depression and suicide rates are so high right now. So inspiring hope subjectively in one another is our calling. We must be doing that for one another. Encouraging one another. Calling one another. Caring for one another. And doing that inspiring godly hope in one another. But I wonder if something that would be helpful for us that struggle with that level of darkness darkness, is a reminder that even when we feel hopeless, hope still exists. Even when we don't experience it or feel it, hope is an objective reality. It's out front of us. As the passage says, as refugees, we must move towards it, walk towards it. Our hope was embodied in Jesus Christ the perfect image of his father. Hope has already entered the inner sanctuary as we're about to see in the next few few verses. Hope has already defeated sin and death. The things we wish for, freedom and love and grace and mercy and truth and justice, they've already been accomplished in Christ through his death and resurrection. He is the personification of hope that all that is wrong in the world will be turned right again. So yes, we must have hope when things are tough, but we also must remember that when we don't feel hopeful, hope still exists. One commentator describes this as a hope beyond hope. There is a hope beyond hope because when we don't feel hopeful, hope still exists in Jesus Christ, rooted in the promises of God and how he's revealed himself to us. So if you need that this morning, if you need to feel hopeful, 
You need to cling to that as we all do in some way. Remember that even if you don't feel it, there is hope beyond hope for you rooted in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And that brings us to our final point. God's promises are eternally trustworthy. We can grow in godly patience, cling to godly hope, and finally embrace godly assurance and, and security. So hope, like we described, this, this objective reality, despite how we feel, does something when we truly embrace it. It gives us a firm foundation. It assures us that God is who he says he is. It gives us security, a solid rock to stand on. Verses 19 and 20 say this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The word anchor is used in Acts uh, three times and it's referring to a literal anchor dropped in the water to keep a boat in place so that the currents don't cause it to drift or float away. This is an image reminding us that the hope of God in Jesus gives us a steady and stable ground to walk on amidst the chaos of life. And it says Jesus did three things to secure this stability for us. He entered the inner sanctuary, he did it as a forerunner, and he did it on our behalf. And on the Day of Atonement every year, the high priest would enter in the holiest, the holiest of holies, the inner sanctuary. This is where the presence of God resided. And it was so holy that the high priest had to wear a, a rope around his waist. Because if he dropped dead at any moment from the presence of God, they would have to pull him out. And this was a barrier that kept the people of God, for their own good, from entering into the full presence of God. But in the New Covenant, because of what Jesus did, because he paid the penalty of our sins... That barrier was literally and figuratively ripped in two. So our stability, our assurance comes from all the power and provision of Jesus Christ who went into that inner sanctuary for us. But what's interesting is that the author of Hebrews calls him a forerunner. This forerunner terminology is used in athletic contests or like a runner out front of a race. Sometimes it's used uh, to, to, um, as a herald announcing the approach of a monarch or a scout in front of an army. But think about this. In the Old Covenant, the high priests that entered into the Holies of Holies on the Day of Atonement, they weren't forerunners. No one followed after them. They were the only ones that were ever allowed to go in there. This is the unique role of Jesus. He was a forerunner because he goes before us so that we can enter into that presence of God. He was the first forerunner into the very presence of God because he was the image and son of God himself. So because he went into that inner sanctuary, he prepared for us a way into the presence of God himself. And it says he did that all on our behalf. He did it for me and he did it for you. He died the death that all of us deserved but could not accomplish on our own so that we could be saved. He went into the inner sanctuary so that we could safely and for our good and our health and our flourishing enter into the very presence of God himself. Our high priest laid his own life down for us so that we could be in the presence of the Most High God. Fear 
is one of the greatest motivators in all of our hearts. It causes us to do odd things. But often it's rooted in a longing for security and stability and assurance. We, we fear, so we long for something to cling to and hold on to. And much of our Western lives revolve around building security, right? Our houses provide shelter and protection. Our insurance safeguards against tragedy. Bank accounts and investments assure that we will be financially stable, relationships and finding our people gives us a sense of stability and belonging we're constantly looking for something to ground us and yet there's this lingering fear that at any moment it could be taken from us financial ruin could be around the corner relationships could end we could get sick or our loved ones could our homes could be destroyed and so in our darker moments we realize all these attempts for security and stability no matter how hard we try, we'll never be as secure and as firm a footing as we want to be. But it's in that place, that place of insecurity and that place of fear is Jesus. There's Jesus who is God's ultimate promise for us, the promise of hope, the promise of salvation, of love, of belonging, true eternal security. Jesus who's gone to places where we never could, died a death we never could, and rose a resurrection we never could on our own. Jesus, we see the fruition of God's promise to always be with us, to quell our fears, to give us that stable footing that we're looking for. All of those things, all of those feeble attempts at security that we try are transient in light of eternity. And because they're transient, they won't bring the stability we're looking for. But Hebrews invites us to find that security, that anchor and the eternal reality that God came down and became one of us. All of our sources of stability may or may not be fulfilled depending on the chaos of life, but our God, our God of integrity, endless power and resources of a never-ending future offers us a firm footing in a life where we won't find it anywhere else. So where is your assurance this morning? Where's your firm footing? Where's your solid ground this morning because if you keep looking for it in the world it will crumble before you and beneath you at some point it will i look back at most of the failures in my life whether it's personally maritally with my kids it's because i've looked for that firm foundation everywhere else other than jesus christ The famous hymn says this, When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. We promise a lot of things to one another. We make promises to our spouses, our kids, our siblings. We often don't fulfill those promises. People fail us. We fail one another. And it causes us to feel untrust, to, to, to struggle to trust people. 
And if we struggle to trust people, how will we ever trust God? We do it by looking at the promises in Scripture that He has revealed to us. And if we believe them, if we can allow ourselves in the good and the bad and the chaos to believe them, we will be changed. Godly patience, hope, and assurance and security will grow in us and we'll begin to experience our own sanctification. This is where sanctification starts, rooted in the promises of God Himself. Trusting those eternal promises will be life-changing for us if we allow ourselves to believe in them. Do not grow weary, church. Cling to the promises of God through Jesus Christ. Amen.